The following podcast contains coarse language and strong opinions on wine. Seriously, these two have potty mouths and little self-control. Listeners, you've been warned. basement studios in suburban chicago it's that wine pod i am pete and my co-host sitting right across from me the protector of petite Syrah, vino mike vino mike is on the mic what's up everybody thanks for dropping in on episode four of yeah, that dude. wine pod so i listened back to episode three you know why been, would you do that dude we got to get better you must have been wasted <laughs> we got to get better it, you know, it's it's interesting, right? Because I think it was a good topic in a way, but I felt like we were stilted, not talking like ourselves. So kind of hoping we get back to doing a little more what Pete and Vino Mike are really all about right here. That's right. Hanging out and chatting. I do remember the bottle of Bialy though, man. That, oh, that was, was, that was, that might've been the highlight of the episode then. Fucking good, man. <laughs> but this wine, damn, damn good too. Hey, what's in that bottle? We got a tasty treat today, no doubt. Um, so today we're tasting a small production wine from uh, Santa Barbara, um, California. It is uh, called Field Recordings. And Field Recordings is the label of a winemaker uh, whose name is Andrew Jones. Yay. So Andrew, uh, a buddy of ours uh, through the wine business, we've known him. He's come to the Chicago market a couple of times. We had the pleasure of uh, meeting him on a handful of occasions, doing some events with him. And uh, this guy, he he lives and breathes the vineyards of California. He was kind of born in the vineyards, if you will. And that's kind of his day job is, is being... Just, just came out plopped in the dirt. <laughs> just found them there like, uh, like Superman was found in the middle of a field. <laughs> like there's Andrew Jones. I think he's just like born, like just showed up in a vineyard someone found him one day in a vineyard and uh you know he's he's the superman of of the vine no doubt um that's his day job he he helps growers all all around um california um cultivate like pick the right grape variety cultivate the the right kind of clone things like that stuff way over my fucking head very technical uh you know technical things that go into just planting grapes in a vineyard but he knows all the vineyards up and down and i think he knows a hell of a lot of people and through those awesome connections he's able to buy fruit from you know, a lot of these growers and make his own wine on the side in all of the spare time he has, um, where <laughs> he's, uh, Hear that? And yeah, yeah. A lot of spare time, brother. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I think that, I think he honestly has like five kids or something like a lot of children. I have one that's, that is plenty. Yeah. Three. He's, he's, he's about like the equivalent of three in my opinion, um, <laughs> which it's great. And, and I say that lovingly, but I can't imagine having five of these little human beings running around to take care of. Right. Yeah. Well, good for him. Yeah. And I'm, my guess is that he sees like each vineyard as a child too. So he's probably got thousands of children, you know, running around here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Without each, a doubt. each vine. And then yeah, with, within each vineyard is each vine and each berry. Uh, the wine we're drinking today is called Pets. Make great pets. Pets, yeah. It's a uh, it's a passion project all about having different pets at home: dogs, birds, cats, <laughs> turtles. No, that has nothing to do with pets. It's a play on what this wine is made from, which is Petite Syrah, the great Petite Syrah. And this is the 2018 vintage of Pets. So fresh, 85% of this is Petite Syrah, and then 15% is a grape called Primitivo from, from the motherland, from the homeland, from Italia. From, from the boot. Yeah, this is Primitivo, um, known for making wines in Puglia, the heel of the boot, Italy. Uh, a lot of people do the AKA Zinfandel thing. It's very, very close to Zinfandel. Um, genetically, a, a little bit different. I, if we had the super technical the Jancis robinson bible wine grapes bible that she put out we could uh we could read about some of those differences between primitivo and zin you know for for the show here we'll just say that it's like zinfandel it is uh it makes up 15 percent of the blend yeah so it it's called a blend but it could be called just petite seraph they wanted to right 
Yeah, this has enough of one grape variety. So I, I believe 75% is your you know minimum requirement to label by variety in California. I'm no TTB expert, but I think you're right. Thank goodness for that. I would not want to be friends with anybody who is a TTB expert. <laughs> nice. So, um, but yeah, they don't. So when you look at the label, it just says pets. And you can tell like in the bottle, the color, it's red. It's a red wine. Definitely when you pour it out in the glass, you can tell this is a red wine. And that, in fact, I might even just call this a purple wine because that's what you get most of the time with Petite Syrah, really inky, dark, super concentrated Petite Syrah. It's not Syrah, just a what? little a little bit of dropping some education for you guys. It's actually called Petite because of the size of the berry. This, oh. The berry itself is actually very small. Uh, but it has really thick, thick skins. Oh, yeah, thick skin. So this is one of those small but thick skin varietals. <laughs> and uh, you, But you don't want to judge a grape by its skin. No, but this is teeth staining. So don't be drinking this and go into the PTA meeting. Yeah, because what happens, you, you because it's a small berry, each berry, it doesn't have as much juice. It's got a much larger skin to juice ratio. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so it's so funny that you're that we're getting into this realm because the name Pets has me thinking about the Porno for Pyro uh, song, Pets. Former Jane's Addiction frontman Perry Farrell is in that, I believe. I, I got to say, I can't really like pull that song off the top of my head, how that goes. Um, but I uh, can't wait to listen to that in reference to this bottle that we're drinking. Oh, you know, pull, pull that up. Maybe I'm, I'm going to try to pull up a little. All right. Porn. I, I hope it, I don't know how much while Pete, this- while Pete's trying to pull up some porn over on his laptop over there, I can uh, continue talking about the wine a little bit. So, oh, here we go. What no. do we got? No, you know, this is the problem. You pull up a YouTube video and you got to go through a bunch of ad before you can get to the what you're trying to get uh, with the porno for pyros um, song. But that's okay. I've tried. Feel free to diss me for not knowing this. A little little pets in the background. I'm not even sure. Ooh. Like this could this could shut us down because it's copyrighted material. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know how much we want to do this, but look up porno for pyros pets. I mean, the seven people that listen, hopefully nobody reports us. <laughs> please. Yes, anyway. please don't. Just, uh, you yeah, know. Sorry, and- I interrupted your train of thought because of my music, uh, well, lack of music knowledge, but just no, I know I like that it. one song. We've been comparing wine to movies. I, I think a wine can definitely have a soundtrack or sure. a theme song, too. And I, I think you nailed it with this one for <laughs> sure. Yeah, but. You know, it's a red blend. Um, again, mostly Petit Syrah. Uh, they don't put that on the label. Gives them the opportunity, gives the winemaker, the winery, by not putting a grape on the label and calling it a proprietary name, to maybe switch the blend up. Or one year they want to use more of a different grape and lower the dominant grape. In this case, Petit Syrah. Maybe you know one vintage it's going to be seventy percent Petit Syrah. Then you can't call it Petit Syrah. And now your consumer is like, "What the fuck? I'm, where's the Petit Syrah? I love that. I love that. I can't find that wine. What's this pet shit?" And it's you know, now you you get to just have fun, put out your pets, pets is pets, and hopefully people know what they're getting into when they buy a bottle of pets. But uh, anyway, small producer, Andrew Jones, Field Recordings, and when it comes to Petit Syrah, this one is absolutely gorgeous. A not c- crazy, crazy, you talked about, you know, staining your teeth, it's staining the wine glass a little bit. This is not crazy, crazy over the top. No, I think when you have... Good Petite Syrah, it tastes like this. And when you have bad Petite Syrah, it tastes like this as like almost like a syrup. It, like you want to you want to have it with your pancakes in the morning right, on right. top of your pancakes. Pretty much. Instead of like this wine, you want to have this with like Pete here is just a master smoker mm. um, of, of meat. <laughs> that has a lot of different meetings. And um, <laughs> that's... That's not good for my career right there. I have personally got to try some of Pete's (laughs) smoked meat. And this would be an an excellent pairing for something like smoked ribs, brisket, barbecue in general. Yeah. Um, You know, steak, no doubt. It's got plenty of tannin also. I mean, it's a pretty full-bodied, powerful wine. Yeah. So I noticed on the bottle, it's about 14.5% alcohol. So it's big, not crazy over the top, but big. On the website, Andrew or somebody on his team says that you got to pair this with some lamb shanks. I could see that. But he also has it listed at 13.9% alcohol. So I'm just going to say, Andrew, I know you don't have a huge team. I know you're a small winery. 
I know though that there's a few people that work with you. Maybe they can get a little, get on the website and do some updating for you. Yeah, that's you know? a that's a pretty big difference. That's a big difference in the wine world. Like yeah. sub fourteen. You that's know, a big deal for, to be sub fourteen. I mean, so. this this is a big wine. The alcohol doesn't. It, 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 this is very well balanced, and it's a very well made wine. And kudos to Andrew, who's an awesome winemaker. Maybe not the greatest with, um, you know, keeping websites <laughs> up to date. I guess. Hey, we could we we know that because we are below average podcasters that don't even have a website yet. Websiteless, right? So we can pick on other people that way. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like the complexity here, which I don't often get. In Petite Syrah, I like Petite Syrah in general, but sometimes I feel it's like one note. It's like all fruit. But here there's like some black pepper, spice. There's a little bit of herb to it. Uh, It's really beautiful, but not a lot of oak, you know, which is kind of a Andrew Jones hallmark, right? He doesn't use a lot of new oak. Yeah, most of his wines um, are about, I, I think he wants to really express the vineyard and the fruit. Uh, the quality of the fruit that he gets. So yeah, a lot of Petite Syrah can be doused with oak because it can certainly handle it. And you get too much of the vanilla and mocha and those types of oaky flavors that make it an oak bomb on top of a fruit bomb. I would definitely call this a fruit bomb. I mean, oh, it yeah. is it's there. gobs of fruit and it's it really coats your palate like just a warm blueberry blanket. And you know, the complexity is amazing. It's It, it also has, you know, since we're talking about meat, it actually has a little bit of meaty tones in I there. Agree. Which I, I think when you, like when I drink a Primitivo from Italy, if you've ever had Italian wines from Puglia, whether it's Primitivo or something else, they tend to be not very fruity and very earthy, dirty, meaty, leathery, th- those types of notes. And some of that is coming out here. So we've got dirty smoked meats. This is porno for pyros this is a dirty episode (laughs) we're starting off (laughs) starting off real dirty oh yeah well i love this wine so i don't know how we're gonna rate wines you know since we're not doing points but i'm just gonna say i would just fucking drink this a lot yeah again the for me with petite syrah i i just want some balance i don't want it to be over-the-top fruit or oak or alcohol or tannin. And this has all of those, and they're all very present, but not one of those components is sticking out too much. It's It's, balanced, bitches. It's balanced, bitch. (laughs) The other piece of this, too, that is the acidity, right? Yeah. I mean, it's mouth-watering. I'm sorry you're going to have to clean my microphone (laughs) off again. Once again, I'm drooling all over it, but... Really, it is mouthwatering, and you know I think he's got it's the the secret sauce to knowing where to get the fruit. The, like a lot of these cool climate vineyards that he knows about, these little pockets that are like right by the Pacific Ocean. Some of the stories that we've heard, right? Um, really, um, he, I mean, the guy knows what he's doing when it comes to winemaking. Holy shit! Right, he's got it. No, not good at websites, great at winemaking. That's what we've got so far. <laughs> but that's why well, he hires. He's got to hire right. some assistants. There's got to right. be someone. If you're out there and you're working for Andrew, please help a brother out and help just get get that website updated. Get that fourteen five on the on the pets, baby. Let people know that they're getting a, a wine with some balls. Maybe maybe you upgrade the lamb shank pairing. I think lamb, no doubt, is a great pairing for this. But I I want a lamb chop. Um, why not the know. shank? What what do you got against the shank? <laughs> <laughs> well, where should I start? No, I, I love it was lamb. that time in prison, wasn't it? <laughs> Got to go shankless. Exactly. Uh, the lamb shank redemption. <laughs> the I think the you know, it's just, you know, lamb, lamb shank braised mm-hmm. uh, little, you know, just a, you know, it's picture like a little saffron risotto kind of falling off the bone lamb. And I think this would overpower it, to be perfectly honest. I would love to taste the 13.9 percent version of pets. So you and I go to completely different places with lamb shank. You go to saffron risotto. Yeah. I go to like a like a German prep with like this big sauce, like a big hearty sauce on it. Oh, my. Our uh, lights just went out. We are in the dark here for we that are, wine pod but episode four. We're down in the basement and the lights went out. Yeah. And if you don't hear an episode five from us, please, please call the police yeah. and dig our bodies out of this basement. Yeah, so our our electricity is out because the only reason this is recording is because of a battery 
that is going to run out. So this is this is I this has never happened in the history of podcasting for Vino Mike, which is only four episodes. So do we pause for the cause here and get the electricity back on? Yeah. And then come back? I think so. And uh, while you go do that, I'm going to keep drinking this bottle of pets. You got it. In the dark. All right. We are back. Now, see, pro podcasters would have edited all that shit out and pretended like it never happened. But we are real. We're raw. We're authentic. And totally fucking unprofessional. That's that's pretty much what I was getting at. <laughs> so we are going to stop the shank talk. Shanks you very much. And move on. Enough of the Andrew Jones love, although I would say that you and I probably have small winery love. We love the small wineries. And we came across an, a blog by Cheryl Dersey, who I know from a past life. We'll, we'll get into that a little yep. bit. Um, you, you turned me on to this blog and to this person, and it's she's fascinating, yeah. and what she's doing is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And, and she's got concern for small wineries. Why is that? And Cheryl... We share your concern. So Cheryl, by way of background, right? Cheryl has a company called LibDib, Liberated Distrib- Distributors or something to that effect, right? LibDib. And what she did there is try to create a platform, a kind of new way for smaller wineries, smaller spirit brands to distribute into different markets, right? Something, and, something that's di- like very challenging for very. the smaller distributor to to get as much yeah. like um, I don't know airtime when they're with like a big distributor. Yeah, right? yeah, right. yeah. And there's big like a few big distributors that control the majority of the market, right? Mm-hmm. There's the Southern Glazers. There's what is it like Republic or something? I, it doesn't really matter. But the point is, there's big guys, <laughs> and there's like three of them, and then there's everybody else, right? And so it's tough if you are a small winery and you've got a couple thousand cases and you're with Southern, it's going to be hard to get them to pay attention unless you're selling those bottles for, you know, several hundred dollars. Yeah. A piece. Super, super high end premium wine. Right. So Cheryl though, she comes from a family that has a smaller winery called La Chance or Chance. It's spelled Chance, but I, is it said chance? I don't speak French. Clos- I, I believe it was Clos Chance. This this is kind of cool because I, I I didn't really know this until you turned me on to um, you know Cheryl and Libdib, and then learned about this connection that her family owns Clos Chance. This was one of the first wines I got to know when I was working at Timponi's. We we poured their Chardonnay by the glass, and um, it, I remember them and Bernardis. Yeah, nice <laughs> old school, you know. Um, where Clos Chance though? They're in I know they're California, but yeah, do you, Central do you, Coast. Central Coast california um but i I just love how the wine world comes back around like here we are you know almost 20 years later one of the first wines i know about and now we're um you know coming to talk about cheryl and and the blog yeah so so we did so full disclosure we did when i was with wine styles we did um i think i said we did seven times there that was great again professional podcasting some private labels okay with them and what that meant is we took their juice, they made wine, and we put it into a bottle, and then we put labels on it that nobody else had, right? And the wine was fantastic. Labels, complete shit. I just got to ask real quick, why, so how did you, why was it with Clos de Chance at this point? Like, why did Wine Styles sign up with them versus, yeah. I don't know, so many other possible choices to buy bulk juice to, yeah. to private label? Yeah, so there was... I don't remember the full story of how we got connected with okay. Cheryl, but I know that Cheryl at one point was helping her family winery go in different directions. That included this type of uh, going instead of making all the wine under their own label, bulking off some of it into private label. Now I hate that term because it sounds like bulk sounds like, like there's poor quality yeah, or something like, Oh, here, take my shitty wine. But it, it happens all the time. A winery makes wine comes in and the harvests are different each year. Maybe one harvest, especially small production wineries that we're talking about now, you know, you might have a great harvest one year, a bad harvest the next and not as much wine. But when you, when you have an excess, I mean, that's, if you can't sell it, it's a loss. Right. So it's a cool creative way for them to maybe sell off some extra wine into a different 
different channel. Right, exactly. And the other piece of that is from the retailer's perspective, having something that is scarce, right? Having scarcity. In other words, nobody else has this. Yeah. I'm the only one and there's not much of it. So come buy it from me. A little exclusivity at right. the at the retail level. And it may, honestly, many times, it may be an exact wine that was in barrel that got labeled under one thing and then another. It may be the exact same juice. Mm-hmm. And that's often what happens. I don't remember the story of how we got there. I do remember, though, that there were many that we looked at. We partnered with a few people over time. And that Glolichance was one of the best ones because of the quality that they had. And it was fair. Like, the pricing was fair. Because it had crappy labels, wasn't their fault. That was our fault. We we did that, right? Not me, meaning we, but wine styles. Yeah. And that was fine. But the the once you got the wine, have somebody taste it, they just absolutely loved it. So anyway, I just wanted everybody to have the background. So Cheryl's coming at this from both a a perspective of a small winery and then somebody that's trying to help small wineries as a distributor. And she's got concerns. And when somebody like Cheryl has concerns, I have concerns, right? And being a supporter of the small, smaller winery overall, I wanted to take a look at it, right? Her concerns are kind of listed She's got seven of them. I'm going to read the first three because to me, they kind of go together and help tell the story. And then I, I want to talk to you about it. All right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And this is, this is on her, her, on her site, blog. Yeah. Live, live on libdib.com. Dot libdib.com. Yeah. Okay. L-I-B okay. as in boy. D as in David. I-B as in boy.com. And then the blog post. And then the blog post. So the name of the blog post is really long, not pithy. Market trends that have me worried about small production wine. Super informative right there. If you don't know what this is going to be about, she's got some legit concerns. All right. So here's the first three. Number one is there is a lot of wine on the bulk market. Number two, wine depletions at the wholesale level are down. And we'll get to explaining this in a sec. Number three, DTC has leveled off. So that means direct to consumer. DTC is direct to consumer. Really what we're saying is there are three tiers in the wine world and we're, we'll have an entire episode around the three tier system to explain it in detail. But in general. Oh yeah. Can't wait for that one. Oh yeah. We're going to get nerdy about the three tier system. In general, you have a winer in the domestic market and all of this, by the way, today we're talking domestic market, right? Mostly California. Um, so we're talking about, you've got a winery. That's your, that's your wholesale, right? Mm-hmm. Then you've got the next tier of wholesale level, which is the distributor. That's tier two. That typically buys it from the winery. That's like right. The finished wine. The buy, finished wine. They buy right. the cases from the winery. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you have the consumer themselves. So the consumer has to buy the wine either direct from the winery. In some cases you can't, but that's a whole different animal. Yeah. And you're bypassing everything else. Everything else. The winery. So, you know. They just ship it to you. They they. Go to UPS or FedEx, put Mr. it in the box. And Mr. and Mrs. LaChance take it to the... <laughs> <Lachance>. <laughs> that, well, you know, yeah. uh, uh, no, no disrespect here, but like they literally yeah. are the ones packing it yep. up and sending it to your door. Right. So uh, think about this in terms of wine club, right? So you're out visiting and you go to this beautiful winery and then they say, hey, you loved our wine. We have a wine club. Want to sign up? Oh, honey, that sounds like a great idea. We should do it. Those wines are so good. Exactly. And then you've got this distributor, right? And then then the last piece is either the winery or a retailer or restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. We call a retailer off-premise because you take the bottle off-premise to drink it. Super from where complex. You, from where you buy it. Right. Yeah, yeah, from where you buy yeah. it. And then we call restaurants or bars or any of those places on premise because you consume it right there and then. I wonder what that meeting was like when they figured out those terms. Oh, I don't know what to call this. So like you buy it at the premise, right? And then you take it. Well, they don't even say premise. They're probably like you buy it at like the place, like the restaurant, dude. Oh, so it's it's on restaurant or off restaurant. Why are these guys stoned and from Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's coming up, oh, right? Wait a minute. Yeah, right. <laughs> January 1st. We're getting right. legal up here. Yeah. All right. So here, let's let's talk about these concerns. Okay. Right? So the bulk market, what that means is that there's more juice, more grapes are being grown and crushed and, you know, there's more juice available to make wine than there are producers buying that wine. And that's really the last piece of this. If you think about it, it's got to start at the consumer level, 
and kind of work its way through to the point where people aren't buying the bulk wine anymore. And like how much of this is is supply and demand versus just mother nature giving Excess. more bountiful yeah. harvests? Yeah. Or so it's a little bit of both. I think it's a little bit of both here, right? Because you've had a lot of bigger harvests um, over the last couple of years. And you also have wine sales le- leveling off or falling, right? So you've got that sub $9 category that's actually falling. Interesting. So it's like negative one point something percent, 1.4%. And then you've got smaller wineries and premium brands that are falling in terms of volume. So that could create a glut, right? On the bulk market, but yet their price points are higher where, so their dollars are, are okay, but it's the, it's the production side that's suffering on that. Right. So you kind of combine those two things and you've got, you've got an issue. Now you got now you got excess juice that I don't know. Does it just go non-fermented into like Welch's or like what happens? That uh, gets I, dumped. Oh, that poor wine. I, I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> they could, it, just, it gets sold for just, less money. I'm sure, just less and less money. Right? It's just thinking you pour pour it into some of the swimming pools in wine country and the hotels <laughs> and. You know, hey, come take a, a Cabernet bath at uh, you know hotel whatever. Uh, I don't. Ho- I don't think they're doing that though. Chardonnay <laughs> Springs now hosting book club adventures. <laughs> Swim in our pool of Chardonnay. <laughs> it's so buttery and good for your skin. Uh, all right, so you've got this bulk wine, and then depletions are lower, right? That's the next thing that's going to happen in the chain, right? You're going to have. Consumers not buying, so therefore wholesalers don't need it. Therefore, people don't make the wine, right? DTC leveling off is interesting because that means that there must be something else going on. And if you if you skip to her fifth, her number five, we'll come back to four, but number five is the media coverage of the fires scared visitors away from California wine country. All right. So that kind of relates, right? Yeah. Like visitor visitors are perhaps a little like, you know, down in, in the visitor numbers means less wine club sales, less direct to consumer. Yeah. Cause I, I got to think dude, that 80 plus percent of DTC, you know, wine club stuff has to be in person. I mean, who, who's just sitting at home, like thinking like, Hey, I think I'll join a, a specific winery wine club tonight. Like, I, I don't, I don't think that happens. It's got to be a massive percentage, uh, you know, or, you know, the usual 80, 20 rule. This one to me, it's got to be more like 95 or 99. I don't, I don't know why, what, unless it was like word of mouth or being peer pressured or you, you go to your friend's house and like, holy shit, that's a great right. bottle of wine. Where'd you get it? Oh, I'm a club member at so-and-so. And then you sign up. Right. Um, but you know, without a doubt, it's from, it's from visiting, visiting the, the area. Yeah. The exceptions to the rule are going to be the super big cult. But Screaming Eagle, right? They don't really need you to come see them. They don't want you to come see them. I'm not even sure they exist. Hey, I think can I can I get can lie. I get another pour of that, please? This is the the, the for those that don't know the crazy culty thousand dollars a bottle Cabernet that you know nobody can get. Hey, our electricity is back. Light, let there be light. All right, awesome. Well, I, we could use the the light. Oh shit! I just caught a glimpse of us, dude. We're not looking good. Maybe go ahead and turn that light back off. <laughs> Podcasting in the dark was a little creepy, though. Hey, that bottle was was half full before the lights came on, Pete. What happened? Yeah, and that so Fire TV came back on. We've got the printer coming back on. All kinds of noises in the background, but uh, who cares? We'll just keep going. We'll, we'll power through this. Power through. Let's pour right. a little more Petite Syrah from the Pets bottle to power through this episode. Oh, look at you with the alliteration. Beautiful. All right, so now here's another. Speaking of shipping... Her number four piece of this, not to brush over the fires. We'll we'll get back. We'll get back to it. We'll get back to that. Her number four is retailers soon, based on a Supreme Court decision, should be able to ship to consumers again. That's a big point. And that's something that had like that needs to that has needed to happen for a long time. Yeah, uh, for like, the, why the for fuck the, did they ever stop allowing people to ship me whatever wine I wanted? And damn this, it. It's such a gray area because they're for some places ship, some don't, some retailers are able to work their way around it. Some retailers just do it illegally and, you know, just say fuck it anyways. And, you know, there's lots of 
insider information at the retail level and the industry level, but at at the end, it's the consumer, and they're the ones that have to navigate through this insanity to try to figure out like who can ship me wine and who can't, and this guy does and this guy doesn't, and it's it's just a mess. And to just have this be like a level playing field for everybody to be able to ship wine across state lines for the end consumer to ultimately either get their hands on bottles that they can't get from their local market because maybe some wines are unique only to Chicago. Like there's a small producer and they work with a small distributor and their only distributor is in Chicago. There's a few that we can name right now. And that wine does not go to Dallas or Miami or New York or wherever. But if you live there and you, you know, happen to be turned on to that wine, you should be able to buy it from that retailer in Chicago and not have to, you know, kind of pay the penalty or, you know, not to mention like level the playing field for, uh, you know, a little bit for price competition too. Sure. And I think that consumers have way more a bigger advantage when you can get shipping from other states than when you don't. I, I don't, I mean freedom of choice is kind of a benchmark of our system. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely does not hurt uh, in, in that case. So I think it's interesting talking about it because it's not an easy thing to get done. Like shipping is still crazy expensive. Like retailers that just eat that cost. I mean, they're not going to be around long anyway. Right. So you got that. My favorite part was the organization that like the retailers belong to, to, to try to advocate for, for uh, nationwide shipping was called free the grapes. Nice. <laughs> so, you know, there's that. So, I mean, it's not going to have, there was a Supreme court decision before that kind of made it t- difficult to the grand home decision. And now we have that. And then you have, it's not going to happen overnight though. So it's not like all of a sudden the borders went, o- went, our- went away. Right. I get this concern, but it's not an immediate, but I like the fact that she's looking at this because it's in the near future. And this this will help the small producer, the small winery, or hurt the small winery? Like, let's just say tomorrow, shipping across the borders, shipping yeah. is totally legal from everywhere. Does this help the small producer or hurt the small producer? I believe it can help the small producer more than hurt if they understand how to play the not worrying so much about direct-to-consumer. Like, I kind of feel like you need to pick a lane a little bit maybe in there. That you have direct-to-consumer, and it's a, a chunk of what you do, but not as big of a chunk as it is today. And then you work more with your distributors uh, to get wine into retailers or work with specific retailers, right. right, to help get that wine into the market and then be the almost be your shipping arm, right? Yeah. In, in a way, I think it could help you cut costs by having the logistics of shipping fall on the retailer's head now versus you because it's not an easy thing to do no not at all and the 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 wineries i mean when you do join the wine club you're typically as the consumer you're paying more than if you were to buy that wine in your market so i i think most of the time with wine clubs too and part of the allure is that you're going to get wines that that winery produces that do not go out to market that are exclusive only from the winery tasting room only yeah, the ta- the tasting room only deals and the 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 bottles that you can you know hey friend you can't get this anywhere only at my house so come on over if you want to drink this but you know the point being that uh, if a winery you you join their wine club and one of the wines you get is their regular Cabernet Sauvignon and you can also go to your local retailer like here in Chicago we have our big re- one of the big retailers here is called Binnie's and like let's just say you can also go to Binnie's to buy that bottle of cabernet more often than not that bottle should be cheaper at Binnie's because yeah. the the winery when they sell out to the market they don't they don't want to undercut their own wine by making it cheaper to buy directly from them. Or even if it's the same price, there might be shipping involved. You might be paying shipping from the winery. Yeah, there almost too, always right? is shipping involved without yeah. a doubt. So it's like, oh, 60 bucks. And then you get to the checkout and it's more like 89. Right. It, which is interesting because a lot of like the free shipping thing has not made it to wine, uh, like to wineries, at least that I've seen. Not as much. It's really difficult to get free shipping um, there. So uh, but either way, I think with tourism down, right, due to these fires, I mean, and I mean, there's been a big impact, right? It's it's not so much the vineyards themselves that have been impacted or the harvest. It's been the people, right? Their their homes have burned down. The uh, 
less expensive. Even some of the big homes, you know, have, have burned to the ground um, in that area. And it's just sad. I mean, it's, it's there's some real tragedy and yeah. real horror stories going on. But I, my take from the, you know, what she's saying with the fires, the media coverage, yeah. it's not the fires, right? It's the media coverage with, you know, just taking anything and, and blowing it up and making it bigger than what it is. And I'm not saying that getting your house burned down is no, is like a small thing that no one should, should give a shit about. That's crazy. And I, I can't have more, sympathy and I, I i can't even have empathy to to be in those people's um you know shoes but to portray like all of wine country is up in flames and that like just stay away and don't come up my actually my my cousin was just out there um her and her husband and they literally like we were texting and they literally just changed appointments from one day to the to the next based on like what was going on with the the Kincaid fire this was like a month ago or so um, in October when they were just out there and they were in no immediate danger, but you know, it was kind of crazy to hear about like trying to navigate when you're close by to, to where the fires were taking place. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I could understand how it impacts tourism, even with just minimal media coverage, because I'm not sure I would go if there's fires raging. It's just, I don't want to be in the middle of that. If I went, I would feel like, hey, I need to be volunteering to help these people, not drinking wine. That's yeah. just me, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm not all that nice of a guy. So if it impacts me that way, I would have to think that it impacts others too. So that's her number five. I think I think that might be a whole fun, you know, well, let's let's take the word fun out of that. I'm sorry, but I, I think that it would be really interesting to explore the effects and kind of learn about what these fires have been doing to the local scene out there yeah it's not like we don't know anybody so we right. could definitely that might be something to talk to somebody else about because i'm not sure we would fully appreciate it no right no we can't but for the purposes of this episode and this topic fire equals bad for direct to consumer right. sales right right for winery sales for right. business just because they're not in person. fire fire this just in fire not good for business in general fire not good we could just stop there right most of the time now controlled burns i understand we're gonna get somebody's gonna send a note right well you know sometimes fires are yes i we get it but wildfires raging through anywhere not a good not a good thing never good all right so number six gets a little less serious in terms of the topic right but still could have a pretty darn big impact and that is consumers are changing and she's got in parentheses less loyalty this is one that really got me because I'm not sure how to interpret it. I'd love to dig into it a little bit more in her her head, like what she means. But the big part to me here is that we, I believe, being in premium wine sales for most of our careers, right? Yeah. We're not dealing as much with having to, quote unquote, sell Kendall Jackson and Behringer and Bogle and these bigger brands, right? Right, right. We are playing now those exist in the stores mind you but they take up a, a pretty small footprint and our time is spent on small wineries overall smaller at least wineries overall and i would say it's an 80 20 like 80 percent of the floor space that we have worked in or 80 percent of the menu is probably smaller wineries in in general in our career and that 20 percent is the bigger even though Dollar-wise, that 20% may give us a bunch of money because people walk in, they grab it, and there's like no time spent on it, right? So all you do is throw the cases, and that's your labor. Labor is not spent hand-holding a customer through the nuances of 2017 versus 2016 Kendall Jackson Vintners Reserve Chardonnay, yeah. right? People just drink it. That's what they drink, right? So from that perspective, I get the loyalty because... People that drink bigger brands tend to just keep drinking bigger brands. People that drink Coors Light drink Coors Light, right? They're not going to walk in and, oh, I'm going to buy Bud Light this time. Where I don't get it is in her perspective, talking about this from a small winery perspective, I don't I don't get that, right? Because I don't view wine drinkers who are going to gravitate towards these smaller wineries as being particularly loyal. I can see them buying a wine year after year, potentially, but really the whole point well, for a lot of our customers and for us probably in particular is that we try different different shit that's the whole point you that's know? that's a big 
a big part of the 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 millennial side to the, to this article, right? There there's a couple of side links that you can kind of click through in some other articles. And one yeah, of the interesting, interesting yeah. one of the interesting, more interesting points was uh, on both ends, kind of the baby boomers. Um, you know, I, I think they're just running out of money. <laughs> and then oh, the poor boomers, the millennials, the millennials, they, well, uh, first of all, they're, it says, you know, they're more into, they're a little more health conscious, a little bit less on, you know, consumption of alcohol. And then they want to try different things and want to have more like kind of diversity. Yeah. And I think in our minds, the importance of small wineries has been inflated over time because of the fact that we spend so much time tasting small wineries, talking to small wineries, talking about small wineries, getting lists from customers on all the small wineries they want to buy from. I think because of the amount of time we've spent on them, that we believe that there's more importance in placed in on them in the industry than there really is. Yeah. I, I, that was a terrible way to say that shit, but I think the point was good. Indeed. I, th- I think that it's also really, really difficult to get a newer, younger wine drinker to like kind of latch on right. to a, to a certain brand or a certain wine and, and to develop loyalty. The, the part that was, that I, that was kind of gray for me, like I'm very loyal to a couple of, of wineries and um, I'll, I'll hopefully never stop drinking those bottles um, from those wineries, but to get into wine in the first place, to be able to get exposed to certain brands as a consumer, okay, like we're in the industry, that's completely different. As a consumer, young consumer, millennial, 20-something, whatever, to get really latched on to like Clos Chance or one or you know, field recordings that we're, that we're tasting right now. I mean, that, that is the odds of that happening have got to be just astronomically low. So I just think it's our, it's a lot, a lot more difficult today than 20 years ago to develop brand loyalty um, for wines. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think there's a few things in there. I'm loyal to some brands also. I don't keep cases of them around though. Like I just, that's just not how I do loyalty. There's one wine that I have a bunch of because I'm building a vertical that I just happen to to love, right? And then a couple others that I have small verticals of, but it's like a bottle or two um, vertical. It's not, meaning maybe seven years, but only one or two bottles of each of those years versus, you know, I'm going to have a case of this that sits around and I'm always, I've got a house red. It's just not, just not where I'm at personally. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's interesting that, that could be something that people do, but I'm just not sure that that's the consumer, at least that we've seen. And maybe that because of that, we are less sensitive yeah. to this piece of it. Yeah. I, that's a great point. I completely uh, feel desensitized to what she might be talking about being someone that whose family is in it. Right. And she's seen so many different market trends and the business change over the decades. And I think that, you know, having loyalty, loyalty to a wine, it, it, there's a lot, how am I trying to say this? There is a, a lot of a little bit of loyalty going around these days. That's yeah. kind of how I feel. There's a lot of a little bit of loyalty. Like you can't be loyal to just one particular small producer wine. Like you want a little bit from over here and a little bit from over there. Well, so it, for us, I where's think the expectation? Yeah. I think for us, that's what makes wine fun is that we can do that. And it's maybe a little bit different, but there are going to be the people who just every single time they go out and they buy Bogle Merlot and that's what they drink. And that's perfectly fine. It's great. I mean, Bogle's a huge brand, family owned. I mean, which they is, are, they are family owned, right? They are family owned, which is unusual for big brands. Right. Um, but even in the case of close shots, right. In the article, Cheryl mentions 100,000 cases of production. And people might look at that and go, 100,000 cases? That is a shit ton of wine. It's nothing. Because that's spread over all of their operations, all their varietals, all their bottlings, all their uh, private label business, everything. All of it combined is 100,000 cases. So although it sounds big, it's not. It's on the upper end of a small or average winery probably in in the California, in the state of California, right? Where there's like 3,900 or something, you know, bonded wineries at this point. Right. So it's different when you think about it in terms of maybe, uh, let's take field recordings pets just as a quick example, because I think it's important to understand this, right? Great. We, we've got 
110 barrels. So it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,700 and let's just say 2,700 cases made. All right. Sounds about right. right. Yeah. So we've got that. And now you've got a chain like Benny's who takes 20 cases per location. And that's, let's just say 800 cases. Right. And now you got 1900 cases left for the rest of the country. That sounds like a lot. 20 cases sounds like a lot. But if you think about it, you walk into a store, you and the thousands of other people that are going to walk into that store, you've got 240 bottles. That's it. It's it's really not a lot. And it's not. As someone who has personally built lots of displays on a retail floor from 21 cases to 80 cases to even 100 cases of wine, when you if, if you just say like if you give your friend 100 cases of wine for Christmas, like, yeah, that that is a definitely a shit ton of wine for one person. And that that's kind of the perspective of the consumer when they think about 100,000 cases or 100 cases or just 20 cases. But when you when you actually build these displays on the floor, I mean, that 20 cases can be gone in a week, sometimes less, Um, you know, maybe sometimes a little more, but it's really not a whole lot of wine when we're talking about the industry and the market and the the uh, so, you know, the the this production of pets you're gonna have a hard time finding this oh yeah that's not much because you also have to think about it in terms of there's 50 states in the union even if they don't export it right right 2700 cases is super small 2700 cases to you is a lot but in terms of it going to the entire industry all across the country yeah. It's nothing. Yeah, I'm guessing right? like Andrew probably has some other markets for the pets bottling that he did. And so we're talking about 2,700 cases total produced. And a fraction of that, a percentage of that is coming here to Chicago with his local distributor, right. um, Vinejoy, Steve Sullivan's company, Vinejoy, a good friend of ours, who just is everything he carries. This guy is small production. I mean, it's right. pra- he's, he's kind of a one man show. This is the complete opposite of a Southern distribution. This is as low overhead kind of as you can get right. in the distribution model. And I mean, I don't know what he got, but it wasn't all 2,700. No. So, you know, you're talking about a fraction of that for one major market going out then to a multitude of restaurants and retail stores from right. the bigger guy to the small corner bottle shop. I, I mean, it's, it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. And for these for these wines to survive in the way that this market is trending with this excess of bulk wine and the um the the big guys you know kind of dominating it's it's really tough to survive yeah. this is this is tiny production not right. small this is tiny right exactly and i think that that's that's a a key to understanding the whole the whole lay of the land when we say small winery or small production, right? Mm-hmm. So her last thing is more competition, more wineries, uh, but also new ways or more ways to imbibe, including craft spirits and weed. Well, how do you see all that? Dude. Dude. Well, cannabis. Um, how about cannabis in the wine? That's probably happening, right? Like, let's let's just be real here for a second, okay? I mean, it's I, I think it's great that weed is going to be decriminalized, okay? Um but it's not those all are of the, it. Those it's, are the views of Vino Mike and not necessarily those of that wine pod or its affiliates. It's not something that is like really vastly changing the landscape on anything. Okay. It's not a brand new fad that has just come around. Okay. So I, you know, and the evidence in the other markets that we have where, you know, marijuana has been legal for a number of years now is it is really not affecting the alcohol beverage industry the whole beverage alcohol period so spirits beer hard seltzer you know wine premium wine low-end wine whatever it is with alcohol so far the legalization of marijuana is not affecting that i i I don't think it's going to have an impact yeah i would tend to agree i think it's a different experience i don't think it one replaces the other especially with premium wines or smaller wines it may may do it for some people, but I don't think in general that that's going to be a huge threat. I think the bigger, the bigger, uh, it's not even a threat really. Right. Right. But like, Hey, Hey, do you want to come over and smoke some weed or, or drink this bottle of Barolo? Right. Well, um, you know, like, can I do both? Can we do both? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so 
anyway, it that is that's not an not an impact on the beverage industry. Right. Not going to be. What is gonna impact the small producer are things like uh craft beer, craft spirits, although craft spirits are a little bit harder to get, I think. Um, and, uh, I don't, I don't, you don't have like the DTC market with craft spirits that right. you, you do with wine. You can't ship across state lines. It's illegal. Yeah. Right? right. So you can only get spirits from your local, um, retailer, or I guess you can smuggle it in your trunk from the distillery. Yeah. I'm not sure what the, there's probably like a law or how much you can take, but yeah. either way, nobody's stopping you. Like, yeah. It's not like there's a strict border patrol yet, right, right. <laughs> but uh, anyway, how much it, Jim Beam you bringing back? <laughs> it is, it's more difficult to, um, you know, get um, small production wine than it is. Yeah. I um, would agree. Spirits. But so the, the spirits though, and the beers, and and now you got the hard seltzer craze. Yeah, right? hard which seltzer, is, man. Which is like, uh, what the article said, something like a billion. Billion dollar a industry. A billion right? dollar industry. And that's and, part of beer. And it, it was like 5% yeah, of, so they, they consider that part of the beer market. Right. But 5% of beer. That is crazy. Like Seriously. wine as a whole is a small market compared to beer. Right. And now we're talking about the small guy within the small market. Right. Going up against hard seltzer these days, yeah, the claw, right? The white claw, yeah. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I I think that where speaking of things like that, I think where smaller wineries are going to have to go is something that Andrew Jones was one of the pioneers of, and that's like alternative packaging, like in cans, for example. He sold his his alloy brand right off to a bigger a bigger person, which is fine, a bigger entity, vintage wine estates. But you're gonna have to go there, box wine, Tetra Pak. You're going to have to get your alternative packaging on, I think, if you're a smaller winery, because that is actually gaining a lot of traction. A lot of traction. And there's good wines, especially canned wines. There's some really good shit in canned wines now. I I am kind of bummed that Andrew sold off the canning line selfishly because the the stuff that he was putting into can was really good. When it came to like 100% wine, yeah, he he was making some interesting beverages. Um, you know, there was one that had like a coffee, like some coffee in it or a coffee flavor, and I. I, that was a seriously acquired taste. Well, not not my cup of tea, my cup of coffee, but um, the stuff that he was bottling or that was straight wine. That was straight wine, can of coffee, <laughs> was so good. It yeah. was so good, and we took many a trip to the zoo, or um, you know, just chilling in the backyard, mowing the lawn. It, it was so convenient, and it was so easy to um, to store, to transport, uh, to keep in the fridge. Most of the time, it's a single serving. I mean, a can a can of wine, a regular size can, three hundred seventy five milliliters, a half a bottle. So that's that's a simple you know single serve. So it's very easy to get into without worrying about cracking a whole bottle yeah. when you just want a couple glasses, that kind of a thing. And then uh, the the box wine is booming right now. There's yeah. there's some real deal choices out there for some really good box wine. And one that's been in my fridge for the last six months is an Austrian Gruner Veltliner that's imported um, distributor here in town called Cream. And uh, the wine is called Splink. And it is so good. And it, it just sits in the fridge. It's three liters it's around 30 bucks. So, you know, I don't know, dude, it's around eight bucks, like the equivalent of like $8 a bottle. Yeah. But instead of having four bottles of wine that you got to open each time, it's just wine on tap, but good wine, right. at least decent. So what do you go through? Like one of those every couple of days, um, the three liters? It depends if my wife is traveling or not. <laughs> Cause when, <Nice. laughs> when she's home too, then it, yeah, it's about like one a day. No, um, honestly, yeah. like it, we use it for, you know, you, pour yourself a half glass while you're cooking or something like that. It's just so convenient. And maybe like, like a, you know, week and a half or something, maybe yeah. 10, 10 to 14 days, depending on what's going on in and your it, life. And it keeps for that long. Totally keeps for that long, yeah. fresh, uh, easily. And just right off to the side in the fridge. It's yeah. very, very, um, you know, nice, convenient. Yeah. I think that there's a few takeaways here for me. One, you can get lucky, but it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare that you find something like the prisoner, right? That is built as a cult wine, very, very small production. Everybody catches on to it. And then the popularity goes up and Dave Finney, who was the founder and winemaker says, Hey, yeah, I'll take that deal. You can come buy this. So Huneus, uh, or whatever they're called now, since that dude's 
got a little prison stint. Huneus bought bought them. Bought the prisoner. Bought the prisoner. Dave, Dave Finney sold it right. to, to him. And they expanded the line into many, you know, different wines and exploded it, right? It still costs about the same amount of money. It's still about 40 to 45 bucks. That's really what it was at the beginning. I guess at the very beginning, it was more like 20, but it quickly got to 30, $35. And it's kind of stayed in that 35, 40 to 45 range over time. But now the production is just through the roof and it's like 160,000, 180,000 case, cases now of premium wine. That's that's like the prisoner, right? Yeah, from small production, culty wine right. to now bulk. Yeah, I, I mean, it's like 200 or I, I think it's a nearing a $300 million brand, which is crazy. Now we're talking about a brand, right, at that point. So when you think about it, you can get lucky, but that's probably not a good alternative for small wineries. Yeah. So as consumers, my takeaways are as consumers, if you love wine and you love small business and you love small wineries, support them. Drink small. Drink small, baby. Got to drink small. The second thing is if you are a winery, you're a smaller production winery, be creative. Cheryl lays out some ways that they've done that before in her winery, but be creative. Find distributors that you can work with. Find ways to incent retailers and restaurants to to bring in your wine, find alternative packaging, figure out a way to use retailers soon as a, as a shipping arm, possibly. In other words, you've got to get outside the box of you do a, then you do B, then you do C. That's how you do wine. That's wrong. You've got to start thinking bigger and different. I think that's IBM's tagline to think different, but that's okay. We're going to steal it for now. Why not? Don't they, come at us, big blue. They they did. Okay. They did. All right. They're, they're all right. All right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, those were my takeaways. Did you have any other takeaways, you know, from, from our discussion and, and there, and that article by Cheryl? You know, I think we touched on so, so many of the juicy, juicy nuggets, um, that <laughs> juicy nuggets that <laughs> going go with your smoked meat. Yes. Good. Taking it back full circle here to the smoked juiciness of the, uh, of Pete's meat. <laughs> but uh no i i think we covered so so much of what's important and ultimately we we enjoy drinking small production wines be it domestically or from abroad it's always great to you know support the farmer the people that are putting in the serious labor time and effort in their vineyards to grow their own grapes as best they can and uh, make the best wine that they can with the end consumer in mind, not necessarily the bottom line. They, they, uh, you know, every well, winery, you got to make money. Every winery is a business right. and they have to make money without a doubt, you know? And, um, but I, I think that sometimes though, as a small business and wineries included, you can step over dollars to try to pick up pennies. Mm. And I think you got to be very, very careful about that. So I would agree with you. You can't only worry about your bottom line and not see the bigger picture that could grow that bottom line in the, in the long term. Right. But sometimes, you know, it hurts in the, in the immediate and you've got to figure out ways to balance that. So I'm hoping that we see more of these small wineries survive and because it, they do produce some unbelievable wines and you get a, a bigger variety that way. When you get to a bigger brand, the one the thing that I want to leave on, when you get to a bigger brand, the good part about it is it's homogenous, right? When you pick up a bottle of KJ Shard, you know what that bottle is going to taste like for the most part. There's very little vintage to vintage variation. Their whole goal is to try to make it taste pretty damn good. So in bad years, it's going to taste pretty good. In good years, it's going to taste Great, right? They they do a great job at this, and the quality level for a winery like that that produces in the millions of cases. You know, I I I do say this lovingly, but I mean that's you know like ordering a coke. It is when you you know when you when you get a coke, you get a coke. You know exactly what you're getting, and when you order a glass of KJ Chardonnay at at dinner, you know exactly what you're getting. Or you buy a case for your party, you know exactly what you're getting. But and there's a place for that. Yeah. Right. What we're looking, though, at and what we're advocating is getting outside that comfort zone. I'm not saying that you don't have that bottle of KJ in the fridge all the time. Have it there, right? I'm saying just break out of it. And every once in a while, go ahead and grab a bottle of field recordings, right? And give it a try. Yeah, we talked about Bogle earlier. And yeah. I mean, their Petite Syrah is one of the, the biggest, you know, top-selling wines and Petite Syrahs in general on the market. And we're drinking a Petite Syrah right now that... 
you know, it's it's pets, it's field recordings, it's pets, it's got Primitivo in it. I mean, it just, it's so cool. It's right. way different. It is way different. And I would have a bottle of Bogle Merlot around. That's not a, or, or Petite Syrah around, but I prefer to drink this, but I can't always, right? Because mm-hmm. it's hard to find and, but it gets me out of the comfort zone. And I think that's one of the great things about wine. So yeah, I think we can leave it at that. Boom. Right? All right. Remember, life is short. Get out there and drink what you like tonight. Thank you for listening to That Wine Pod. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at at That Wine Pod. And we are That Wine Podcast on Facebook. Also, check out Mike on Instagram at Vino Mike. And Pete is at Fat Man Stories. Please subscribe to That Wine Pod on your favorite podcast app and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show. The music is Proto-Funk by Kevin McLeod. That Wine Pod is a production of Paragon Media. (laughs) 